0: This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. The 3CR Gardening Show is coming to you today from the Woi Wurrung Nation. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of this land. We recognise the practices of care and cultivation of the land and waters by the First Peoples and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Wherever you are and wherever you garden, we encourage you to know whose land you're on.
1: Well, good morning, good morning. It is Sunday morning, and that means one thing. It means the 3CR gardening show. My name is A B Bishop, and uh, we have got a very busy gardening weekend, but two fantastic people who have interrupted their gardening pleasure is a Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants and author and super bloom general amazing person, Jack Semler. <laughs> good morning. Good morning How are you? Very well. How's everyone? Good. All good? I think. Yes. Yes. Good.
2: Yes, these good. early mornings. I've, it takes me a little while to wake up. I've had a coffee. I should be fine from now on in. Yes, but thank
0: goodness d-
2: for caffeine. Honey. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, it's really important stuff. Um, but yes, it's. Uh, it's been an interesting time over the last week or two. We've had some really weird weather. Mm-hmm. Yes, it
0: has been so strange. Yeah,
2: really strange. I mean, you've, you've had really cold days and then suddenly it'll be 30 degrees and you think, what's this all about? I don't think my plants have worked it out. So it's really, really strange weather. And <coughs> and having such warm weather so early is a bit of a worry. Yes,
0: and I think we can really see that kind of extremes of the Nino, like coming into, into play. Like mm. there's such like, just like like for you, Stephen, like mm. just that super hot day is where like yep. the plants are like, what the heck's going on? Mm. And then we, it's followed by days of cold weather. Yeah, it's
2: very strange. It's not helped my sweet corn because <laughs> I think I sowed it slightly too early, getting sort of excited. So I might have to redo it. Um, and it's the first year I can remember that it's put, My bare-rooted trees that have not that terribly long ago been potted up, it's put them under stress. So even though the roots can be damp, you know, and I'm watering madly, they're wilting during the day when we get one of those hot days because they haven't developed enough root system under them yet, and it's never
1: happened before. Yes, and I am Actually, place. Jack. Just before you continue, uh, I'm just wondering: can we hear Jack, uh, Tom? I might get you to pop around onto uh, number three. We'll have to, sorry, have, a, have to move my a forest a little bit. Here. Stephen has brought a forest in, so we're going to uh, switch. Can you look Jack underneath that, Jack?
2: <laughs> I'll leave that one up there, maybe. I
1: don't mind being in a forest.
2: Yeah. Oh dear. All right. Here we go. Getting slightly organised here. Um, make some space.
1: Flipping uh, drinks around and can't, can't have Jack Bean without her coffee this time of morning.
2: <laughs> All right, here we go.
1: Great, All can right. you hear me through here now? Yes, we can. Oh, okay. So we had an issue with Sorry that mic. That. Uh, there we go. Not sure what was going on there. Um, okie dokie, yes, Stephen, thank you for moving your yes, rather large forest. That I don't know in. why
2: I do that. I I should just bring in a snippet of everything because nobody can see it, so I don't know why I'm bringing these great big plants. <laughs> well, in. we appreciate
0: yeah. it, uh, I do, appreciate it too. Yeah. Lovely, ah, so, uh, yes, yes, so
2: yes, so the yes, stress on plants at the moment, so it does seem to be a major issue, um, and uh. I'm actually, uh, although I'm not stopping people buying plants, I'm advising people to hold them in pots and, and grow them on now because I just think it's that little bit too iffy to be planting still this late in the season.
1: Okay, so so, so Nothing.
2: Yeah, no, I'm I'm not mad keen on planting any uh, major plants at the moment. I just think it's getting too dry too fast. We haven't had a lot of rain. And uh, unless you can concentratedly water and care for it uh, in the establishment phases, um, now is probably not the best time to be planting out. Mm. Having said that, and this is my nurseryman coming out in me, uh, obviously if you see something you want to have, as long as you're systematic and you look after it in the pot, often a good idea to buy it when you see it because if you come back later...
0: Oh, not necessarily there. No, nah,
2: and it's happened to me over the years where I've had a fit of uh, economy uh, <laughs> where, <laughs> where, when, when I've seen something I sort of think I want uh, and then I think, oh, look, I'll pick that up next time. Yeah, Come back, it's gone. Uh, I remember years ago there was a plant that I would sort of vaguely knew about but I'd not seen it for sale anywhere, a, believe it or not, a neotropical mm. blueberry. Um, and I saw it in a nursery up in the Dandenongs and I thought, oh, I've spent so much money today. This is when I was very young and still trying to uh, make enough money to survive on, and I thought, oh, you know, i better not buy that now. Came back, nursery was closed the next time <laughs> I Aww. came back. So I reckon it took me two years to track that plant down yes, again. So, yes. yeah, so if I can afford it, I buy it and I have it, and then I look after it yeah. um, because I think, you know, the best time to buy something is when you see it, mm. yeah. um, particularly in plants, and I have to say that the – Array out there is getting poorer and poorer, uh, sadly, uh, in the general industry, both in wholesale and retail. Mm. Um, I mean, some of the big wholesalers are growing lots more plants, but they're not growing more varieties. So,
1: sadly, my, my problem when um, and Jack and I were talking earlier about the the bulbs that we've sort of bought over the years from you and other yeah. people, and and of course you buy them when they're in flower, and then I, you get them home, and the flower finishes, foliage dies down, and then a month later you're like. Damn it! What is in that pot? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that happens a lot. Is there anything in that pot, or have I just left it in the glass house randomly? Yes. Um, So you have to leave it. The memory is a big issue. People think they're going to
2: remember everything they need to remember, but no.
1: No. I really need to just get myself one of those uh, textures that go on the outside of pots and write on it, do this in spring, do this in summer, expect it in autumn. Yeah, probably a good idea. That's a best solution. I actually
2: use my phone quite a lot now too. Um, If you've got a plant that needs specific conditions, like you've got to dry it off or you've got to take the bulb out of a pot and keep it dry for the summer or whatever, if it's something that needs a particular job done at a certain time of the Mm -hmm. year, I pop a reminder in my phone and say, pot up the tropiolums or whatever. Oh, um,
0: you're so organised. No, I'm not. Yes. <laughs> I don't feel ask, that me to,
2: ask me to get a litre of milk on the way home and see what happens. <laughs>
0: um,
2: so, but I, I'm recommending this to my clients as well. If it's something that does need to be worked on at specific times of the year, just pop mm. something in your phone to remind you that in, you know, end of February you need to pop that up or whatever. Mm. Uh, and that helps a little bit because our memories are getting worse. I've, I regularly get customers who come in and say, now, two years ago, I bought that Tropiolam from you, and it's still dry in the shed. Is it all right?? <laughs> Yes, uh, yeah, it's no.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's our memories are getting worse. I think we've just all got so much on. Yes, yeah, well,
0: and so be. much information kind of coming in all yep. the time in our modern lives. Oh, yes. yes.
1: thank God we've got our gardens. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. So, oh, and um yes, yeah, it's all very good. We're all busy leading up to Christmas, aren't we? Oh, or, yes.
2: Yeah. And of course, uh over the next couple of weeks we'll be getting invitations to different organizations Christmas parties and God knows what else. Uh so it'll all get sort of frenetic and mad as we you know, head towards the beginning of December. Mm.
1: So, uh, and then we all collapse in a heap afterwards. Oh, God, yes. yes, yes. <laughs> Stuffed full of
2: food we didn't need to eat. I, uh.
0: I have to admit I do love this time of year, even though it's a bit frantic. Like just having the daylight savings kicking in where you can have that little mm. bit of garden time, you're not getting home in the dark. Like you can have a bit of that time in the early yeah. morning or the early evening where you can just potter around. Like that is bliss. That summer
1: gardening, I just love it. So so thank goodness we've got the light on our side. (laughs) Well, it's something. (laughs) Jack, anyone um, who doesn't necessarily know you, don't know who wouldn't, but um, you are the author of um, at least two books, Super Bloom and Super Bloom the Handbook, and uh, you are renowned for having a garden that's absolutely jam-packed with colour. So I imagine for you going out in the morning with your morning coffee, wandering around, is an absolute joy. Yes, it is a joy. I'm I am an
0: unapologetic maximalist. Uh, I don't I don't really
1: believe in that uh, term overplanting.
0: It's, yes, I, I do think that there's a lot of underplanting that's happening. <laughs> but um, it is a real joy this time of year. Like you can really, especially this time of year, even though I I really am in my garden seeing a lot of what you talk about Stephen where you can really see the stress response of plants through this variable season that we're having you can see a lot of plants very easily affected by heat Mm. um, even if they have been established especially for new plantings as well but I do love this transition from spring into summer you now have a beautiful succession of flowers around this time of year so so it's something to revel in as well. And do you still get surprised when you go out, to, out into the garden? Yes, yes, yes. I really I really just I just, that pleasure that you get when you're like poking outside and something else is flowered and I've got big um, verge planting. So all my nature strips planted out at the moment and, and the neighbors and it's like they're, we're on community flower watch. Like they, <laughs> anytime I'm in the front yard, they can point, they'll be pointing things out that have started to flower that I haven't seen yeah. yet. So it's, it's really amazing. I think our whole community is just really embracing that change of the seasons too. So you've done a community service
1: is what you're saying by oh, planting yeah. out the it's, nature strip. It's completely virtuous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. It's
2: not that you're just taking over every square inch that you can get your yeah, hands yeah, on. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> I, I completely filled my own garden. I didn't actually have a nature strip <laughs> because we didn't have um, footpaths and things put in because well, I'm on a little dirt road. <laughs> so there was all this land that just extended straight out from mm. my boundary to the street. So I just kept gardening. And so my garden actually quite literally runs right to the street. Um, there's there's actually a path through the middle of it all, but it, it's seen as my garden, so mm. nobody other than me uses it. Mm. Um, but... Um, yeah, I just garden all the way through. And it would be interesting to see what would happen if our local council decided that um, they needed to have rules and regulations about what you were going to get mm. away with on nature strips. Mm. They don't seem to have done that thus far. But I would use the laws of precedence if it came to my garden mm. if they decided they wanted to make any changes.
0: Yeah, I'm finding that councils are really moving with the times. They're really embracing. That's exactly mm. what I
1: was going to say. Yeah, yeah. 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 Is, yeah,
0: that's been your experience yeah. too, Yeah, Yeah,
1: more and more mm. councils are saying let's go with a gardens, let's, mm. let's get them happening and reducing the red tape yeah. a bit. Yeah. Well, I hope that is the case because I think there's
2: some councils that have almost gone the other way because of public safety things. Uh, there was a garden in a local town, so it was in our shire, um, and this person had spent a lot of money gardening on their nature Mm. strip, and it was down a road that hardly anybody walked down, but one of their neighbours decided they didn't like it, and so they dobbed them into the council, and the council made them take the infrastructure away.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's unfortunate that that can happen. and I actually forgot to mention too, I think the Heart Gardening Project, which is an amazing organisation in Melbourne, are having a celebration this afternoon to celebrate, you know, another section of their pollinator corridor that's oh, opening up. St Martin's yes. Theatre. Yes. yes. How so fabulous. Fantastic. Yeah, so it's it's great that even though there can be these examples where where gardeners are met by red tape, that there's a lot of positive community action, a lot of councils moving forward and a lot of people, mm. you know, getting that connection and biodiversity on their
1: verges. Yeah, so do you want to explain a little bit about the Heart Gardening Project? Yeah, it's yep. run by a
0: really inspiring uh, garden community member, um, Emma Cutting. It's, it's really filled by volunteers and they've been actively gardening sections throughout Port Melbourne in a in a desire to connect that area up so we have a biodiversity corridor um, it's also really encouraging that community connection that you can get from gardening and a lot of us you know like and more and more so it's going to become rarer and rarer for everybody to own a house these days and so having that gardening that can happen on a street level that connection to community it's really amazing what they've been able to achieve so, so get out and support Support the heart gardening project
1: yeah i follow her on instagram i have to say we've got to have her on the show i can't believe we haven't actually because what she's doing i know i know very very remiss but what she's doing is quite incredible not only from as you say jack the the plant point of view but also that community sort of connection point of view and getting people to know local plants and uh, yeah, I just love following all the mm. projects that she's getting mm. into. So, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And a great, if you want to know more, a great website, The Heart Gardening Project, you can Google it. Yeah. Good. And she's also got a book out, hasn't she? So yes. you
1: can follow exactly the sort of process. It's almost like she's done the Heart Gardening Project template for other communities if they want to sort of inspire their fellow community members and start planting up the verge Mm. and and all those sort of little nooks and crannies Mm. in the community that aren't planted with anything yeah Yeah, absolutely
2: Um, it's sort of like putting guerrilla gardening into a Official sphere, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes.
1: We don't have to sneak around at 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. <laughs> Planting a <Daffodil>. yes. yeah. <laughs> We're out there and proud.
2: Uh,
0: you can uh, tell that we've all done that, can't yeah. you? <laughs>
2: Actually, in my street, not only did I take over the nature strip without even a second thought, but I'm inclined to impose plants on my neighbours and what I do is I go in and because I'm seen to have some knowledge, I go in and I say, now such-and-such would look really good just there. Oh, and And here's one. And and here's one, yeah. (laughs) And so I donate to the cause and it just sort of gives me a, you know, they talk about using the borrowed landscape. I actually take it over. (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
1: Stephen makes the borrowed landscape. Yeah, that's right, exactly. So
2: so my neighbours have often got plants in their gardens that suit my garden very well. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so you don't necessarily always have to buy it. You can just sort of take it over by stealth a bit.
1: (laughs) I, I think I would feel very happy if I had someone like you in my neighborhood and I didn't know much about plants mm. suggesting what would suit the area and yeah. something mm. that's a little bit unique you yeah. know not, yeah. not yeah. the For usual yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah
2: it's it's obviously my whole sort of ethos about gardening is not to do the obvious mm. Um Because I've heard it so often, particularly on things like talkback radio, where people say, oh, well, if you don't know what to plant, go around and have a look around the streets and see what everybody else is planting. That's bound to work. And you think, well, yeah, but it's a bit of a cop out because you're going to end up with the same plant material that the next door Mm neighbour or somebody down the street's got. And you've only got to go through some of the newer suburbs, particularly in the western part of Melbourne, where there's not a tree and everything is uh, a monocarp. Mm. So there are just strappy leafed <laughs> everything. Yes. you know there's lamandras, cordelines, flaxes. The the whole thing is yes. all, all that. Uh, I mean, those plants when I was a kid and learning horticulture were dot plants that you use to give a textural variation. Yes. Now suddenly they're the whole garden. And it's sort of sad. There's nowhere for a bird to land. Yeah, mm. you know, I call it monocot monotony. <laughs> yeah,
0: I love that. I think we should really move those monocots back to that dot kind of style. That's so what it's they should be there adding for. texture. Yeah, they add robustness to the landscape. Yeah. But there's so much other beauty and wonder that oh, we can cultivate. Of course there is. Yeah. You know,
2: so yes, yeah, so I just get a bit. Uh, annoyed by it all, and it doesn't add to the biodiversity. Uh, it's often, in some cases, not really all that uh, pollinator and, and animal friendly because a lot of those plants are wind pollinated, mm. so they're not actually adding anything to the pollination thing. Uh, it's the other trouble with grass gardening is you know it's it's all about wind pollination, not about insects. And uh, so yes, I think we need to start reassessing. What in fact uh, has happened over the last few years. Mm. And I don't care how small people's gardens are, there's room for a tree.
1: I know, but you've got to select the right one. Exactly, but you have to sort of feel empathy for people that don't know anything yeah. about plants Absolutely. or gardening, oh, I, I, like, I become a dictator do Where do you start? Where do you like, start? Put them you in go? a
2: multi-storey building.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but we need to
0: encourage them. And yeah. maybe that neighbourhood connection, that's a beautiful example of how you can actually reach out that gardening hand. Gardening is contagious yeah. once people experience a bit of success. And so, you know, like really reaching out that hand and offering that plant or offering that connection, mm. you know, it's just going to give them more, uh, you know, Confidence in their own gardening, they can yep. have that perseverance when something dies because we all kill plants, of course, we do, <laughs> and um, and we can really get them along that garden journey. Yeah, yeah,
2: I think that's fantastic. And it's funny actually because, in hindsight, looking back, when I bought my block because it was a block that had a house on it that burnt down in the Ash Wednesday bushfires, mm. and my only excuse for buying the block I did was that it was the only one in the area I could afford, and that was it, uh, and it was. Dreadful soil. One of the local real estate agents said, "Oh, you didn't buy in that street, did you? It's, <laughs> it's full of raw sewage and dead car bodies." Um, and to, I think it was slightly exaggerating, but nonetheless, it was that was what mm, the street. At was least like. it wasn't
1: dead bodies. Yeah, well, you no, know, just dead car, car bodies.
2: bodies is is better. Um, but since I started gardening there, particularly at my end of the street, everybody seems to have embraced it just because I was doing it. Um, and I now call our end of the street the Paris End. <laughs> so, uh, and it is, it's really pretty. It's like a little it. English it country it's lane. Yeah. and 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 most of the properties around me are gardening uh, at some level or another, and it's really
1: pretty. Oh, great. Um, so, gardening is yeah, It can. It can mm-hmm. help a lot. Very good. All right, well, I'm going to get to some community announcements. Uh, I've got a few to get through um, and we've got a lot to talk about today. Uh, So, first of all, the State Rose and Garden Show is on at Werribee. It was on yesterday and it's on again today. And there's lots of presenters, including me. I'm Mm. on at uh, 2.25. talking about how to create a mini habitat garden. So, you only need a very, very small area. And I'm sort of building one on stage, which has been a lot of fun. Um, Chloe Thompson is emceeing the event. And Vasili is there. There's Craig Castry and um, there's... Oh my goodness, there are so many stalls there and planty stalls, lots of rose stalls, lots of yummy food stalls and also um, there's a Newport Lakes uh, Native Nursery and Wyndham Wildlife Gardens is there so helping people um, if they're wanting to create a little bit of habitat in their garden. So that's the State Rose and Garden Show on at Werribee and that's a free event which I always think is very nice. Um, Also on is the Yarra Valley Spring Plant Fair and Garden Expo. Oh yes, and today's
2: the last day. Today yeah. is the
1: last day and this is being hosted by Sophie Thompson and as you can imagine there's 18 million amazing speakers and um, fantastic it's a great stalls. great It's such yeah. a good event, yeah. it yeah, really, it is. really is.
2: Yeah, it's one of those places <laughs> that if you're keen to become a good gardener, even if you're not yet... There's so much acquired knowledge yeah. in that place mm. with all the different growers that are there. You can talk about how to grow Varea rhododendrons or how to grow this or how to grow that. Um, there's at least one really good rare fruit tree grower there. So if you're wanting to grow edible things, um, he can help you a lot with all sorts of obscure and fabulous edibles. So it's a, and, and they have food and they have alcohol and they have... All sorts of other things going on up there as well. So. And if you
1: want to buy a $600 Thai Constellation, you can do that as well.
2: Yes. <laughs> so, I still can't get my head around some I of those know. things. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it does create interest in horticulture, though, I guess. It does, uh, yeah. In its yeah. own way. But yes. Yes. If I could charge $600 for most of the things I had at the nursery, I'd be laughing. You would, uh, you would. But anyhow.
1: All right. So that's the Yarrow Valley Plant Fair that's um, on in... Um, oh, i forgotten the address. Uh, it's Quail, um, Road, Quail Road, Wandon, and Wandon. it's
2: Q-U-A-Y-L-E. That's right. Thank so. you,
1: Stephen. And it's $15 for entry, $13 concession. A couple's pass is $29. Um, children under 14 are free. Uh, so that's Yarra Valley Plant Fair. Uh, Open Gardens Victoria uh, have got an open garden on next weekend and we've got a double pass available for this one uh, so if you want to give us a buzz on 9419 so it's in Malmesbury. It's called Melrose. Jack is shaking, she's nodding her head yeah. vigorously. And this so- is
2: the last time Melrose will be open, too, because oh, yes. they've sold. Yes. Uh, or selling. I can't remember what, but they're moving up to Castle Main. And so this is their last opening. So this is your final chance to have a look at the garden. I mean, new owners may or may not be interested in keeping I know, it's always a, a garden worry, isn't going it? That way.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's at 33 Clowes Street in Malmesbury. Melrose has been described as an enchanting space that blurs the line between the productive and purely ornamental, a gardener's garden and as having a wonderful choice of plants. It has been observed that it's hard to say what kind of garden Melrose is. It cannot readily be categorised. There is a strong Mediterranean theme, dry climate plantings, elements of cottage gardens and extensive use of productive plants in an ornamental context and a mix of formality and informality. There are eclectic plantings, winding paths and a new discovery around every corner and Jack and Stephen are nodding vigorously here in the studio, <laughs> obviously agreeing. It's beautiful. Am I underselling it? <laughs> it, is, it is a really excellent example of dry,
0: dry summer gardening, mm. if you, especially if you're working in that region, like our climate, we are going to experience more El Nino seasons going forward so this is a really excellent garden to get out and see, to really get some inspiration on how you can maximise the plants in that kind of drier environment. There's some beautiful, like, pistachios and even roses. And and she's also planted out her verge too, Mm. Deb. So plenty
1: to see. Fantastic. And I think you sold it well, Jack, because the double pass has already gone. (laughs) yeah uh, didn't take <laughs> and, and much. did not <laughs> take much at all. <laughs> so that's on next weekend, so Saturday and Sunday. Um, it's 33 Clouds Street in Malmesbury. $10 for adults, $6 for students, under 18 free. You can book and pay online uh, or pay on the day. So just go to opengardensvictoria.org.au. Um, Lily Langham Gardens invites you to her garden called Three Chimneys in Basalt, Victoria, Sunday the 3rd of December, 10am to 5pm, and you can get your tickets via Eventbrite, they are $18.00. Three Chimneys is a fourth generation family farm of Gold Rush era Swiss Italian heritage set on five acres of productive gardens with perennial borders and wild grasslands. Lily Langham has been creating this garden for the past 18 years with her family from a bare paddock with a couple of 100 year old pear trees. See Lily Langham's garden in the making, plus her established gardens and her artwork inspired from them. Plant stalls with plants propagated by Lily. Uh, Natasha Morgan will be selling her famous syrups and cold refreshments. There'll be tea, coffee, and cake. And they have a special guest there. Jack Semler, who is everywhere at the moment, will be <laughs> signing her latest book, Super Bloom. <laughs> so another gardener you obviously know, Jack. Yes. I,
0: I Actually, it was, it was a real privilege to feature Lily um, as one of our garden makers in the first Super Bloom. But I have to say, this garden is just so full of heart and soul. And Lily, like many of our gardeners, you know, she started off in fine art. She's mm. a sculptor and you can really see, See that way that her craft and her practice has travelled into her garden and into the surrounding landscape as well it is it is just one of those gardens you go to and you just feel like your heart explode a bit you feel like it's a real as a country girl for me it's like that you know coming home to that country or that more modern interpretation of a country garden it is really gorgeous and Lily and Natasha have got together to organise this by themselves so good on them get behind them and come and see this glorious garden.
1: All right, so that's the Lily Langham Gardens and uh, you can hop online and just Google that. That's what I did to get information. Uh, It's called Three Chimneys and it's in Basalt, Victoria on Sunday the 3rd of December from 10 till 5. Um, Before we come back to yours, Stephen, I just want to um, mention a tour that has been taken by Chloe Thompson through Travel Right and it's an autumn garden tour to Britain and Ireland, including the Wisley Flower Show. Now, it's not on until the 3rd to the 22nd of September, but we, we know people like to sort of uh, get on top of where they're going and what tours you they're need doing. To plan et well ahead you need for to plan. Like that. Yeah. And I have to say, it's um, I've, I've got the information flyer on it, and it is absolutely jam packed with all the different gardens that they're going to and the different shows. So that is the Chloe Thompson Autumn Garden Tour to Britain and Ireland including the Wisley Flower Show September next year through Travel Right. Okidoki, Stephen. All let's right. get on to a right, couple of things I'd garden. like to
2: mention. Actually speaking of Chloe's, too, I probably should throw in a, a plug for my own tours. Um, and mine are so- one of mine sooner than that. <laughs> uh, if anybody wants to go to Madeira and the Azores... Yes, I do. I am doing that <laughs> next, next year in May. Um, and seriously looking forward to it. It should be fantastic fun. And it's a slightly sort of offbeat place to go. So it's a little bit different and interesting. It's Portuguese. It's out in the middle of the ocean. Uh, it's got a wonderful endemic flora uh, on both the Azores and Madeira Islands. And... Um, that should be great fun. It's May next year. It's about 19 days long. If you want to find out more about it, go on to the ASA Tours website. So that's Australian Studying Abroad. But if you just type in ASA Tours, it should come up. And you can go through and look at all their different tours they've got coming up. And looking well into the future, well, actually, no, looking a bit closer to time. I also am holding a, an autumn garden uh, tour up in the Macedon Ranges for the same company. And that's a four-day tour in April. Um, and uh, it's the week just after the autumn festival up at Wandon so I go up and I do the autumn festival and then I go and catch my tour group on the Monday morning and off I go. That's a bit uh, silly. Yeah it is a bit silly but anyhow it seems to be the way it works so we've got that coming up and it's also with ASA and for those who are looking further into the future uh, and sometimes it pays to book well in advance anyway uh, I'm doing Normandy and Brittany again in 2025 so they're the tours I've got over the next couple of years and I know we're taking bookings already for all of them and uh, there's plenty plenty of space left I think on all of them at the moment but it is slowly building up so um, I'm hoping certainly the Madeiran one and the Mount Macedon one I'm hoping will be full by a little after Christmas at the latest so if you want to come on board you better go and have a look at that straight away and we talked about open gardens. Well, I've got mine open coming up in uh, December so the 2nd and 3rd of December. I think it's the last opening for the scheme for the year. Um, and I'm opening with my mate round the corner uh, Dale, whose garden called Calum will be open. It's about three or four minutes drive from my place so we're quite close by. Um, and quite distinctly different sorts of gardens. Uh, I think you could have a lovely day coming up and visiting tugurium and Calum mm-hmm. uh, at Macedon on that weekend. So that should be quite good. So they're the main ones I wanted to talk about and we might hold on to my
1: your other my, my project
2: for later okay. uh, to talk about because I think that's something I'd Bit like to... Bit of a to...
1: cliffhanger there. Yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. keep people
2: in suspenders. <laughs> mm.
1: Alright. Um, I just want to read out a text that's come through. Jack's positive gardening energy is exactly what we need on a Sunday morning. She also has the most soothing voice. Could there be Ooh. a Super Bloom audio version in the works? <laughs> ah, here we go. Oh, That's so sweet. <laughs> I'm blushing. You can't see it. Yeah. I'm not sure who sent that in but... Oh, um... that's very That's very nice, yes. Uh, So, look, we should invite listeners if they want to ring in with a gardening question um, or text in, we can Mm. text in. Uh, You can text on 0488 809 855. You can call us on 9419 0155. And uh, I'm AB Bishop and I'm in the studio with Stephen Ryan and Jack Simler. So, what are we going to talk about, guys? Are we talking about plants? Oh, well, let's We've start with so a couple just to,
2: just to get people sort yeah. of excited. Yes. And we might yeah. as well get rid of that one that's sitting up above you there, oh, AB, like uh, about to engulf you.
1: Could you bring in a bigger one next time? Yeah, I'll, time? See, I'll, see,
2: I'll see what I can do.
1: Um, this plant fascinates
2: me. And I think it's one of those things that um, uh, has been hiding in uh, obscurity for far too long. Uh, it's a plant called Actinidia uh, uh now I'm going to have a mental block. Actinidia teram- teramira subspecies malacoides. Mm. And that could be part of the reason why it's been hiding in obscurity. Uh, so it's basically a kiwi fruit relative. So it's related to the classical edible kiwi fruit, which I still prefer to call a Chinese gooseberry. But anyhow, uh, the New Zealand is taking, uh, taking over a plant that's not theirs. Uh, but this one's a highly ornamental one. And it does something really weird and... I don't actually know why it does it. And there's a couple of different species in this genus that do do it. And that is that randomly it will throw leaves oh, that are half wow. white and half green. It looks or like in,
1: spray painted yeah, them. Yeah, it does. Look, or yes. dip them
2: in something. And sometimes the whole leaf will be white. Uh, other leaves will be straight green. Uh, so you get this mixture of white and green through the plant. It's not a classical variegation. It's not a viral thing. It's mm-hmm. a natural thing of the plant and several actinidias do this and i don't i really have no sense of why i haven't been able to find out what this is all about so obviously uh it, it flowers as well and it's got very pretty little um pink bell like flowers that hang in clusters uh all over the plant and they're really nice and if we had a boy and a girl one and we haven't uh we'd probably get kiwi berries of some sort or another. Um, So I haven't got both sexes to offer. But as an ornamental plant, it's stunning.
1: Is Uh, it a vine?
2: Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a deciduous vine. I think as far as I know, virtually all the actinidias are Mm -hmm. um, vines, although there's one or two evergreen ones. Um, And I think they're an underused group of plants. And as much as I do love my flowers in the garden, I really have a soft spot for leaves that make impact. Because even on a deciduous plant, they're there from spring till autumn. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, you can't expect that of most plants when they're flowering. Um, And certainly with shrubs and vines and trees, they tend to have a very specific season. They don't Mm. go on all that long. Uh, But to have something that has these amazing white-tipped leaves, I think it's fabulous. It's just really lovely. Now, as far as growing it's concerned, it's a light, airy climate, so Mm -hmm. it would be... Great up a fence or uh, a pergola or what have you. Uh, it's very manageable. It's very prunable. Uh, it probably doesn't want to be in a spot where it gets the heat of the middle of the day sun and a howling northwesterly at the same time, but otherwise not overly hard to grow. Uh, so just a little bit of shelter from the real heat, especially when we get those dreadful days um, and it likes a well-drained and not too dry a soil uh, but otherwise not a particularly fussy plant uh, and yet you don't see it for sale very often. So Actinidia terramera subspecies Malacoides.
1: How do you spell a species? Uh, hold on I've got a label
2: in there I'll check <laughs> it up. Um, Tetramera is T-E-T-R-A-M-E-R-A and Malacoides is M-A-L. Uh, well, it's maloides actually, M A L O I D E S. So, so it's an actinidia, a, a kiwi fruit relative, hmm. and it is a very underutilized genus. There are some really beautiful plants. I've got another one at the nursery that does this white tip thing, but it has big round leaves. Um, uh, actinidia polygamma and the former I've got one called Vera's Pride and I'm not quite sure who Vera was uh, but it has lovely white tips to the leaves and it has clusters of white flowers mm-hmm. and uh, so yeah there's some really interesting things out there. That
1: so when you say it's well behaved what, what's well, it's, sort of not, it's not a
2: strangly and... sort of vine. It's, it's a light, airy vine. Uh, it climbs by twining, mm-hmm. uh, so you need something for it to twine round. Um, and it doesn't get heavy. It's not like a wisteria or something like that that becomes really big and, and, and butch and hairy. Hairy? <laughs> That's not what I meant to say. Uh, I think I meant to say sort of solid and woody. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a light climber. Mm-hmm. and. If you had a respectably solid little tree or something, you could actually grow it up okay. through a tree and yeah. it would look lovely. So, as a, I've always got this thing about if I've got a shrub or a tree in the garden, if it could support something else, it often does. Because mm. I see that as paying the space paying its way. Yeah. Yeah. So, if I can get two plants taking up the same space, why not indeed?
3: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So I, I, I don't yeah, think Jack, Jack would need yeah, any
2: commenting
1: yeah, yeah, on that one. more on lads the better. <laughs> yes.
2: So, yes, I often marry up a climber with a plant. Mm-hmm. And people go, oh, isn't it going to str- uh, strangle the plant? And you say, well... I guess there's always the chance that some climber I put in might strangle the plant, but aren't the two of them together far more interesting than the one on its Mm. own? And I get far more value. And if you do marry the right climber with the right host, um, then they can often cohabitate for years. Uh, And I guess the other thing people need to remember is that there are no fences, pergolas or walls in nature. Where do climbers grow usually? Up other plants. Up other plants, yes. So that's the way they grow in nature. Um, And sometimes the climate can be even more important than the host. Sometimes you can have a sort of a boring tree Mm. and you whack a wisteria up through it or something and suddenly you've got a feature. Um, And even if long term uh, it strangles the tree, does it really matter? I think people get too carried away with some of these things. I mean, all plants have a lifespan. So at some point or another, they're going to die, uh, whether they be an annual, a biennial, a monocarp, or a, a perennial, uh, everything will eventually die. But if you're, I've created a, a really good effect in the garden by putting two plants together like that, I don't care. I just clean up the mess at the end of the whole exercise and start again with something
1: else. And each plant shines at its own time anyway, yep. doesn't it? Yeah. So, exactly. yeah, especially if you're clever like Stephen because well, you can plant plants that flower at different you times. You can,
2: although occasionally it's quite fun to plant a climber through something that flowers at the same time as the host plant And confuse well. people. Oh, I had uh, – I mentioned tropiolums before because they're a, a perennial um, – tubra producing plant and there's one called tropiolum tricolor that gets little red mm. black and yellow flowers which is as cute as and it flowers in the late winter and at one stage I had a species rose in the garden called canary bird well not species but an early hybrid and it just has big long arching stems and little single yellow flowers on it and it's one of the first roses to come in flower in the early spring and I had this tropiolum growing up through it And with the little red, black, and yellow flowers, with the yellow flowers of the rose, it was sublime. It was just gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Very sad the rose died, actually. But anyhow, things happen. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yes, look at climbers in a new light. They're not just to hide the shed, although I do have to say why people have ugly sheds, I've got no idea. Um, If you've got a nice shed, you don't have to hide it.
1: <laughs> well, that's that's a beautiful climate, yeah, I have to so say. Very
2: unusual. I think the actinidia is lovely and it's very g- gentle looking and dainty and, yeah, lovely, lovely plant. So oh, there you go.
1: Knowing how you like to spray paint your Miscanthus <laughs> red, I was actually wondering about yeah, that yeah, one yeah, if you'd yeah. uh, dip that in white paint.
2: Yes, well, you it, it certainly looks like you could have done, but it would be a fiddly job to do. <laughs> very
1: fiddly, especially when it gets up a bit high. But I'd love to know
2: why the plant does it. Mm. Because as I said, it's not the only species in its genus that does exactly the same thing so there must be some purpose behind it Mm. in fact I might do some research and see if somebody's done some research um, because it is a very strange thing to happen
0: very yeah and there's no uniformity to that marking no you know there's a leaf here that's fully white and one with a little blotch one that's two-thirds it's so variable yeah it is Uh, and
2: it's Probably one of the difficult things about this plant from the perspective of selling it is that none of these actinidias that get this leaf colouring in them generally do it in the first year. It generally takes two and sometimes three years before they start showing that variegation in their leaves. So you'll have people come in who've seen... There's one that gets pink tips called Colomicta, and they'll have seen it in an Irish garden or in an English magazine or whatever, and they come in and they want one. And if I've got any for sale, which I don't very often because it's a hard one to get going, uh, it'll be a little plant in perhaps a 15-centimetre pot. won't have any pink on the leaves, and you've got to be a fairly good talker to convince people that... That plant will actually do it. You've just got to be a little bit patient and wait for it. And this one does it a little earlier. But even so, you can't sell a little one mm. uh, and have the white tips on it usually. Mm.
1: It's funny, isn't it, in terms of people buying plants. Most people really are, um, they, they buy on flowers, yeah. don't they? when when something's in the nursery, it's in flower, that is what sells it.
2: Yeah, the impulse purchase, uh, I have no objection to it, but people should also look at some plants that don't do the impulse purchase thing because there's plenty of them, and they're sometimes better garden plants Mm. because some of those things that they're selling in the nurseries, these dinky little things in pots with flowers all over the top of them, stay dinky little things.
0: Yes, and we want things to really flourish in our garden. Yeah,
2: and and you want... I don't know what it is about some of the breeders. They seem to think that because gardens are getting smaller, every plant needs to be some sort of little tiny gnomy, dwarfy thing. Um, and we don't want that. Even in a small garden, you need something with a bit of oomph to it. Yeah. So these little sort of miniaturised versions that are out there of practically everything—they're um, not always very good garden plants. Mm, mm. So yeah. So you need you need to be prepared to either. Bond well to your nursery person who can advise you on things that don't look all that great in the nursery but you should have in your garden or you need to do some strong research and find out the things that you want to have a go at and then go and buy this scruffy-looking thing from the nursery.
1: Think Uh, about what the plant does, the job of the plant.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah.
1: the role. Yeah. Perfect. So, Jack, besides uh, rolling around in your colourful garden and writing (laughs) books, what do you do? (laughs) I run my own plant practice called Super Bloom. So I'm a little unusual for a horticulturist we
0: largely work with landscape architects um, on major projects, some smaller projects as well. So mm-hmm. we, we're we multidisciplinary, so I've got a background in community engagement and education as well as horticulture. Mm-hmm. Um, but we really love working and assisting the people that we work with to really bring our plant love and plant expertise to these projects, especially in the public realm. As Stephen mm-hmm. was saying before, like it's time for us to really – explore the diversity and the abundance and the wonder that we can have in public places and so yeah. we're very roundabouts pleased to do without lamandra mm-hmm. yeah that happen? <laughs> yeah all of that kind of so we're, we're right at the forefront of doing some of that work so it's very exciting around that but also I feel like super bloom as a plant practice we're really about advocating the importance of the gardener as well you know we've got We really want to have a really strong professional industry and for gardeners' experience, their knowledge, their qualifications to be really valued as well in our public and private spaces.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, kudos to the landscape architects that are working with you because um, I feel like you're sort of at the opposite end of the scale to a lot of landscape architects who don't get to study plants, really. You
2: could probably become a landscape architect without meeting anything green.
1: Exactly, yes. And so (laughs) to to work with someone like Jack, who is just like full-on plants, like no minimalism here... I think, yeah, kudos to whoever's working with you. And also I think for anything, any kind of project, it's all,
0: at the end of the day, it's all about collaboration. Like everybody has different strengths mm. and expertises. And when we can bring them all together, like our, our philosophy is always like um design teams make planting dreams like when you've got a whole lot of different expertise around the table and it's a collaborative environment where you can bounce off that's when beauty and wonder can really happen something that's really for the community and will last the test of time too
1: do you find that when you are talking with these people you have to sell plants that a, they've got no idea about, or, or B, they, they want less colour and you want more, those sorts of things? I think sometimes
0: there's a lot of um, either assumed understanding around how plants roll in our world and what that might look like to care for. Mm. Um, also, there's a lot of... Um, a lot of risk aversion as well when we really want to actually... Yeah, let's not experiment. Yeah, and fair Mm. enough, fair enough. Like, you know, uh, especially local government, you know, they really have a responsibility to provide robust landscapes for the public that will last the test of time. And so I think by actually engaging with gardeners and and horticulturalists, the professionals in this industry, they really can support them through that process and help educate
1: their clients as well. Mm. mm Yeah, it it, w- it would be tricky, isn't it? It's that mm. whole balance.
0: Yes, it is a whole balance, and and we really, especially in public landscapes, we want we want more, not less. We want biodiversity, we want habitat, we want beauty, we want public engagement and appreciation of those landscapes. Mm. So, mm. so you know, we're very pleased. Have to Have you be on been those to projects. the High Line? Yes, I have been oh, to the High Line.
2: I mean, I see that as a fantastic example of what can be done in a public space, particularly a really weird public space Um, I mean it's an old public transport line that runs through the city up in the air and yet they've landscaped this whole area with shrubs and trees and perennials and grasses and the the whole thing, and it's amazing. And it's a real
1: tourist attraction, isn't it? Thousands
2: of people walk the High Line. I mean, it's just amazing.
0: Yeah, Pete uh, was very lucky. I did a big study trip earlier in this year, so, you know, to California, to Oregon, to to New York as well as going to the UK to talk to gardeners that are actually caring for these landscapes because the design is very important, but then the management of these landscapes these landscapes progress and they evolve as well. And, you know, they've got amazing dedicated gardeners that work yeah. on the High Line with years of experience mm-hmm. and you can really see that. Oh, you flourish, can see it. Gardens
1: mm. flourish through that that role of the gardener as part of it too. Mm. Yeah, and we were talking earlier, Jack, about uh, management versus maintenance because I was saying to you, so let's have a chat about um, the maintenance of your incredible gardens and Jack was like, well, I like to use the term management. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, I, and know I have what to say is I'm on board with you there too. My garden is is very unstructured, uh, and so when people come into the garden, I mean it's got paths and things, but it's not a seriously landscaped garden. There's no hard edges. There's uh, there's, you know, there's no cortex steel, uh, and. I regularly get people who come in and they go, oh, your garden's fabulous, I love your garden. And you go, ooh, and you all puff up. And they say, it must be so easy to live in a garden like this that doesn't require any maintenance. <laughs> and I think I'm forever out there tweaking, fiddling, and, and playing with it to manage the, the plant material that's there because I overplant to billio. So you've got to, you when you do that, you've got to manage the plant material. Otherwise, one big thug will swamp everything else out. Um and so it's actually quite a complex garden to manage because there's so many different levels and all sorts of things going on all the time. Um, and self-seed is popping up all over the place. And, you know, it, it's it's really one of those gardens that's actually quite complex to manage. Mm. And um, pe- because it doesn't look like it's managed in some ways, I can sort of get it uh, why uh, somebody would come in and say, oh, this must be lovely because you mustn't have anything to do. Um I even had a lady once who spent hours wandering around the garden. I thought I was going to have to throw her out in the end. It was getting so late. And she came up to me and she said, I just love your garden. It's such a peaceful, and lovely place to be. Can I send my garden around so that you can copy it? And I thought, well, no, you can't. I mean, it's taken me 30 years to create this. This is a process, not a product. So, you know, it evolves and changes all the time. You know, I've pulled out plants. I've had plants die. I've tried other things. The whole thing is a emotion, it's happening all the time it's not its not a finished product yeah. so you can't do that.
0: And our listeners that are tuning in today, they would know that plants are dynamics, they're not static, mm. and that gardens evolve over time, we want them to evolve over time, like you said before Stephen, mm. like plants have life cycles things die, things seed you know, there's all these kind of different systems and processes and so instead of just looking at a garden in terms of tasks, yeah. like I need to chop that and mow that, we actually want to like bring high skill horticulture to these spaces like Mm. what you're describing where you have that curation of Mm. the space so you're Mm. making decisions all the time it's actually quite an intellectual process where you're where you're predicting and you're you know making all of this vision into the future and then designing your tasks that you undertake in the garden around where you want that garden to get to its response to the seasons there's a lot of complexity to them Mm. and we want complexity in our public landscapes in our gardens that's where habitat happens that's where wonder happens and so we are really advocating um, a change of terminology because when we say maintenance it often may yeah but it also makes it it makes painting a wall and like there's all of this other kind of inbuilt knowledge that goes into caring for plants
2: and actually does (laughs) verging off into slightly different direction it also um i find the idea of historical gardens being poured into aspic uh, and kept trying to keep them static, an absolute nonsense. Uh, and I've had quite a few interesting discussions with people from different heritage groups and what have you about some of our old heritage gardens up at Mount Macedon, for instance, sake. Uh, I remember being in the garden with some people from Heritage Victoria one day in one of the big gardens up there, and I'd actually sold a tree to one of the previous owners that was starting to become quite a a lovely tree, and it was a meta sequoia, the dawn redwood from China, and they said, well, that'll have to go, and I said, I beg your pardon? They said, but it was only discovered in 1945. And I said, but it's growing right next to a larch, which was a European tree, which is also a deciduous conifer, they both blend into the garden superbly. And if the original owner had had meta sequoia available, they would have bought it um, because all those gardens up there were all about collecting and being acquisitive and you know, and, and trying to gazump the neighbours and all that sort of thing. So it was, it, it was about collecting. Mm. And so those gardens shouldn't be kept in an era. You should, in fact, keep collecting. And as long as you're putting things into it that, visually work in the space why shouldn't you plant a new hybrid rhododendron or a dawn redwood or a whatever that wasn't authentic and in fact i just did a youtube video that came up this week on one of our big gardens up there denira and they've got an elm avenue which is lovely but it's some of them are senescing uh and they've gone to the effort to repropagate elm to replace the senescing trees but what Mm. happens if dutch elm disease gets in Mm.
0: Yeah, exactly. And we need to have resilience in our gardens, in our landscapes, especially in a changing climate. Some of these species, unfortunately, won't be able to survive in the places that they're currently planted.
2: Exactly. So you have to look forward and say, all right, well, what can we do that nods to the history of the place but isn't locked into some historical date? Mm. Uh, I mean, there's a garden up on Mount Macedon that's a tree-covered, dark Foresty garden now, which is lovely, Uh, but if you wanted to take it back to what it was in 1870, you'd have to cut all the trees down and plant 30,000 annuals a year because that's what they did. Mm -hmm. And so it's a completely different garden, and you couldn't take it back to anything like its original form. And in fact, that's another argument you can use. I mean, if you want to put a garden back into that era, then you need to take out all the trees because, in fact, what would have been there were saplings back then. yeah, They weren't big trees. They mm. were planted with the idea of having big trees, but they weren't. Mm. They, they were little saplings. and so. But know, there was a
1: vision for there the There was garden. a vision for yep. the
2: future. Yep. And I would have said any of those garden owners would have hoped that that vision would keep going and not that it was going to get locked into a certain moment. Yep. So you can always restore a house to its original form and use the original colours and things if you wish to do that. But you can't change a garden into an original form. Yes. So, so there's a little bit of deep philosophy for you. (laughs) Yeah,
1: we're really getting into it today, (laughs) aren't we? (laughs) All right, well, somebody who would also like to uh, get into it is Margot. Good morning, Margot. Good morning. morning,
4: team. Hello. (laughs) Hello. Uh, I just wanted to comment. uh, My daughter's just finished landscape architecture degree. Oh, And she's got a first job and she's completely bored because (laughs) the only thing she's allowed to do, this firm, by the way, makes all its um, money from just working with developers on new um, estates. Oh, yes. And her little job as the newbie is to find the spots available along the nature strips to be able to plant a tree. (laughs) Now, after all the services have gone in, you can imagine there's water, power, gas, you know, whatever's going across the nature strip. There's not a lot of room left. Mm. So often she's only got one metre... To plant a tree. Oh goodness! And and then you know the same tree goes in front of all the different houses along the street. So she's completely bored and frustrated.
2: <laughs> oh look, she'll find a better job soon.
4: <laughs> yeah, that's right. But isn't it? It just goes to show the lack of thought. She said, "If only they allowed them to do the, the landscape plan before the services put their bits in." Yeah. Yes. They could do a whole lot of different things and plant different trees but that, yeah they've got to find narrow trees and you know uh, small root systems and all that
0: sort of stuff and if anything like the pandemic has taught us it's like the value of having those green spaces that's that's really where developers should be looking to that's what's going to make that development really appealing over yeah, time and nature
2: strip should be nature
0: Mm. yeah so yeah, actually good, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> so there's so much more advantage in developers actually rethinking the use of green space and the use of mm-hmm. nature and use of gardens in those developments as well so all the best for her she does have an important role but even if it's a tiny little pocket that's a pocket that we can have plants in rather than no plants at all so so all our like flower
1: power to her to mm-hmm. keep going and to, yeah. to yeah. do her yeah, best in the she's got to fight industry.
2: through the initial stages yeah. of her career I think
1: yes and, and and, I mean, she has yeah. been brought up in an environment, uh, Margot, where she's surrounded by plants. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah mum's got brilliant. something to you. say about this as well. Yes. It's, speaking of uh, plants, how's your garden going, Margot?
4: It's going very well. And um, I think maybe before this sort of drought season sort of gets going... I
1: might open it next year. So. Um, oh well, you've put it out yeah. there now. It's yeah, all over. It's too late
3: now, Margot. <laughs> it
0: is. It is a glorious thing, I think, opening your garden I like, love it. It just you meet all these other plant people. Yeah. It's just it's a nice day out, isn't yeah, it? It is, and, yeah. of,
2: and of course, from the a garden owner's perspective, it pushes you to get the garden looking as good as you can for <laughs> the opening. So you can sit back and and be full of virtue after the opening because you've done everything. And I yeah, love it looks that.
4: Yep. I think that's exactly my feeling. Before I get too old, I just want to have it all done once.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, I, I'm with you on that's that, that Marga. I think that's a great to thing to work towards.
4: Oh, great. Thank you. And some of the trees are, you know, getting a good size now. So,
1: Well, look Terrific, forward to visiting it. Yes. Yes, lovely. keep us All in right. the loop, Margot. our garden
4: party, then after Virginia started the ball rolling. Yes,
1: exactly, exactly. Yes. All right. Well, you take care, Margot, and we'll chat later.
4: Okay. Thanks, team. Bye. Uh, bye, bye. bye. Bye.
1: bye All right. And let's go to Jill. Good morning, Jill.
5: Good morning, panel. Um, a great show as always, and lovely to hear from Margot, who's always got such interesting things to say. Yes. She does. Yes, a couple of things uh first of all, a little bit of boasting i you know I've got a new garden in the front garden and it is going gangbusters, oh yay, and, good, which is just fabulous um my Verbena bonariensis, I, I got a cat bit carried away and planted 15 of those. Well, that's I, all right. You'll have
2: 55 of them next year. <laughs>
4: yes, I
5: already, already, even though the garden's only a year, I can see them seeding around. And, yeah. all, but, and I, I'd seen them at Heronswood and thought, oh, they look so ethereal um, and lovely, and they don't take up much space. I will just dot them through the other plants. Well... Mine are three metres tall, yes. I kid you not. Yeah, but and actually mine at
2: home is really tall this year, taller than I remember it ever being.
5: Ever, yeah, and a metre and a half across, they've swamped a lot of the neighbours <laughs> that I thought they were going to grow ethereally through. Oh dear, oh well. <laughs> but, but, you know, fantastic. The, um, But the one of the issues that I just have this week is... The garden has been absolutely filled with cabbage white butterflies. They're everywhere. Yeah, same I are. actually put something
2: up on my social media the other day. I've got a, a, one of those giant biennial echiums, echium pinanana, in the garden oh, at the nursery. Gorgeous. And it's about three or four metres tall, and it's in full bloom. And the whole plant was covered in cabbage white butterflies and, and bees the other yep. day. So I took a little video of it. I sort of ran the video up the tree. And I've had oodles of contact, uh, contacts from people going, wow, uh, with all these white butterflies flying over this blue tower, uh, <laughs> they're everywhere this year, which probably means we're going to struggle to grow any brassicas mm. this year. I would, well,
5: I was going to say, yes, I keep telling myself, oh, look, they are pretty, they are pretty. I counted well over 70 in, mm. the, in the front garden alone. Um, and then I keep thinking, the
2: caterpillars, the caterpillars,
5: yeah. <laughs> uh, nothing we can do about it, I guess.
2: No, um, well, you can't have a butterfly without a caterpillar. So it's yes, all part of the
5: thing. But, but I don't think the cabbage whites are that pretty anyway. Oh, I, oh yes, I, I they are. Got, yeah, I got, they're, they're I sweet. Native, Look,
2: I, I don't I like their caterpillars, ones. but anyhow.
5: I, well, well I've, got, you know, I've got a few admiral butterflies and, mm. and um, the beautiful um, citrus... Uh,
1: Dainty swallowtail, beautiful. I'm yeah, waiting for my gorgeous. monarchs
2: to come back again this year because well, I planted some Asclepias in the garden at home about four or five years ago with the idea that I might attract uh, monarch butterflies which originate in America but as the plant has moved into Australia the the butterflies come with it which is bizarre and Matthew and I were doing a YouTube video on plants that you put in to attract different animals specific plants that you put in for specific animals and I had the audacity to talk about planting a gum tree to attract a koala um and I also talked about my Asclepius, and it was just coming into flower and I said to Matthew, now I've planted these for the monarch butterflies, I haven't seen them yet, and one flew past. Oh, perfect. Uh, we caught it on film. <laughs> Matthew wasn't sure we could use it because he thought he might have used an expletive just as the as the <laughs> butterfly went <laughs> past, uh, but it, it turned out it didn't. Um, and yeah, uh, I regularly now get monarch butterflies in the garden because I've planted a specific plant that they love. Mm. Uh, They do tend to make the Asclepias look pretty scruffy by the end of the season because of their caterpillars, but that's all right. Yeah,
5: it's a small price to pay. I think it is. Uh, The only ones I do resent are the cabbage whites. Um, And look, the other other thing I do have a problem with, I've I've tried to make this garden as wildlife friendly as possible. I've done a huge variety of, you know, plants and trees and grasses and things. Um, Well, obviously grasses are a plant, Um, but... I'm uh, finding that the ponds, because they're in full sun, are developing huge amounts of string algae. And mm. I just wondered if any of you might have some possible solutions
2: because it's such a pity I've got. How, how deep the, are your ponds?
1: Uh, one and a half metres.
2: Oh, so they're a reasonable depth. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you have uh, many I... plants in them?
5: I do. I have uh, 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 big pots of uh, iris chemferi, which I had last year and didn't get the string algae, so mm. I don't quite know why it's developed so much this year. It's and awesome. also the, and the milfoil and, and things. And I've got a couple of water lilies, but I'm thinking I love looking out on, particularly the big pond from the house, at the water, but I'm thinking I might have to get, cover it in water lily leaves just to stop so yeah, much water,
2: Some sort of surface plant will do that. Actually, water hawthorn's another thing you should look at, a Water hawthorn, hang on, just write that
5: down.
2: Yeah, uh, uh, It grows like a water lily. Its leaves sit on the top, but they're sort of elongated leaves, and it gets a white flower that's sort of got two fleshy spurs in the flower. I'm not quite sure... What the structure, how the structure works exactly, Uh, but the flowers are edible. (laughs) Um, So it can be a win win. Um, Jill, I'd
1: be putting in things like uh, some carexes, carex vesicularis, or. How do you spell carex? How do you
5: spell the.
1: Oh, any 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 of the native characters will do the job mm. yes, um yes, or things like yes. Beloskian. so any of those sort of yes. swamp plants and they're so good at filtering
3: that
5: mm. mm. they, they uh, look,
1: really really are
5: I have got a Beloskian, and it's not doing frightfully well. I've got the pot with the base sitting in the pond, but it's not fully um. It's submerged. not fully underwater.
1: Should I should I sink it down deeper? It, it shouldn't actually matter. They mm. would cope with both. Um, yeah, so is your the, pond, is it um, fully sealed or have you got sort of yeah. muddy edges? No, it's fully sealed. I had to do that. We're on the sand belt. Oh, so
2: yeah, you'd never get yeah, a pond. If yeah. You, yeah.
5: Yeah. No, yeah. no, the pond wouldn't st- stay for a minute if if I had the other. I, I was disappointed about but, yeah, it's, it's
1: fully sealed. Yeah, we have, um, our pond was in full sun. And, I mean, to if you wanted to, you could plant um, things around the edges, which would provide a bit more shade, because you want to go for about sort of 70% shade and 30% sun. Um, yes, to just
5: thinking of another tree on the north yeah, side.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'd be thinking of that. But also um, what I did with ours, which was it's a concrete pond, and it was just yeah. getting hammered with algae. And one day I just... Absolutely cracked it and uh, brought in heaps of uh, scoria, poured that in the pond, also put a whole lot of uh, hollow logs in, that sort of thing, put a bit of um, shade cloth in and then put just put heaps and heaps of pots i got some plastic um washing baskets and put a shade cloth in them put scurry in them planted them out and then once they're in the pond you actually can't see the basket at all and the the plants went absolutely ballistic and they've actually taken over the pond now but um there's now no problem with algae so i would just be getting yeah. more plants in there
5: uh, look Yes, it's a sort of a shame because I love, as I said, the look of the water. It's just so soothing, and I, I don't want to have it so as I can't see the water for plant in a way. But the scoria—that's um, something I, I could try. Now I had heard that vaguely. Is that uh, is it, does it allow some sort of bacteria that, that yes. helps to control the, yeah. the algae? So it's, it's only string algae that I have. I don't have the cloudy algae because I've got one of those UV lights in the in the in the filter pump.
1: Oh, okay, yeah. So the scoria—it's that volcanic rock. It's very lightweight. Yeah. You can yeah. get it easily. You can move it around in a wheelbarrow easily. And because it's so holy, it's got lots of bacteria in those holes. And those bacteria—that bacteria helps to filter the water while your plants are getting going.
5: Right. Okay. Yes. So look, I think that that sounds some terrific suggestions. <laughs> Thank you. Because yes, I am. As I said last last year, you know, the the garden just sort of went in just before Christmas, and. Last summer was fine, but this summer it's just been a nightmare with the algae. And I I don't want to be adding chemicals and stuff. No, you know.
1: no, no. Not yep. if you're trying to attract frogs.
5: Yes, which I am mm. trying to. <laughs> yes. Okay, look, thanks a million. That's, Good. that's some terrific suggestions. Good and, on you, Jill. And I guess I just bear the cabbage whites along.
1: The <laughs> well, I, do you know, I was chatting <laughs> with someone yesterday and they were saying that they um, have Got golf balls and drawn eyes on them, and um, put them about the place. And because the cabbage whites are supposedly territorial, and uh, that they absolutely swear by it, yeah. I know. I know I've you can get the little egg decoys well. and yeah, little yeah. decoy um, butterflies. But I, I, I think um, either something like Dipel, if yeah. you if you want to, um, which is that natural soil bacteria, or um, exclusion netting, yeah, is mm. yeah. the way okay. to go. Yeah.
5: Yes, festoon the caterpillar. Yes. Well, I mean, one thing about the, the um, my massive Benariensis, I can't imagine any
2: caterpillar having much
5: fun on them. <laughs> <You laughs> now it's know, not probably uh, one no. of those plants other things None
2: will the, munch on particularly. Yeah, hmm.
5: no, they're very hairy and, hairy and rough and, and repellent. Yep. Uh, look, thanks so much. That's all, that's all terrific help.
1: Good on you, Joel. Take care. Okay. Yeah, all the best. All right, bye, bye for bye. now. Bye. Stephen, someone was asking about the High Line. Where is the High Line? Oh, in New York City. Yeah.
2: And so if anybody goes to New York, it's an absolute must. You've got to do the High Line and you've got to go through Central Park. Um, And... uh, Yes, it's an old tram track, I think. Yeah, yeah,
0: it used to be used as part of the meat work. So yep. it was this old, it sits above the street level and it used to be this old kind of freight route. Mm. Um, and, they, you know, there was all different kinds of discussions around the purpose of what would happen. And there was quite a lot of innovation where it was actually suggested that this... Become a garden because yeah. of the lack of green space in in our cities these days, and so designed by Pete Alder with you know an incredible partnership with landscape architects in that city, mm. uh, a really amazing example of dynamic seasonal planting in a city space. Yeah, it's
2: not, it's not static and that's one of the things that I loved about it because a lot of municipal plantings here tend to be all of static evergreen things yep. which is fine um, but there's no sense of dynamics.
0: Mm. And the seasons. Yeah, like you've got to engage with the, the seasons. Season. Yeah. yeah, so
2: um, I just love the Highline for that. It had deciduous shrubs, it had herbaceous perennial plants. Uh, it had its structural things that were there all the time um, but you could see how... You could walk the the uh, the whole walk, and it's quite long. It's a, it's a mm. kilometre or two long. It's quite quite a, a long area that they've planted in this linear way. Um, you could do it almost weekly, and it would be changing.
0: Yes, exactly. And it's become this amazing tourist attraction. It's changed property development around it as well. So it really demonstrates that, you know, that gardens, green spaces can have economic benefits mm. for our cities too. Mm, I think uh,
1: Melbourne's looking at doing something similar. Yeah. Aren't we well, yes, let's,
2: let's hope so. Let's hope so. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, we are lucky in Melbourne that we have got a fairly leafy city. We're pretty fortunate with all of our avenues of trees and our big public gardens and things uh, right in the middle of the city, which is fabulous. Um, but we can always do
1: better. it would nice to have some colour as well. Yeah, Yeah, that seasonal colour, yeah. whether it's from natives or non-natives. Mm. Oh,
0: both, both really important. You know, there's some glorious colour from our Australian plants that can come into mm. the public landscapes and so much diversity of Australian plants that is not planted. Actually, yeah.
2: I have to say, I've noticed over the last four or five years probably some street plantings I mean they're still planting avenues of things because it's sort of purposeful in a way you know a straight row of a certain tree can look quite um, splendid if it does well but they're actually using a few interesting things I mean down by the um, art centre going down towards the um, theatres and things um, they've put in Illawarra flame trees all the way down that street. They took out a a mixture of bits and pieces and these are really kicking off. I've seen some cowries being planted in areas as street trees, all sorts of, where where is it? When you turn off um, near the Children's Hospital and you're going to go down towards Kingsway, there's a little almost triangular um, island, I guess you'd call it, on the left-hand side. And they've planted three South American piranha pines which it just blew me away Very when random. I saw them in there. It's a really <laughs> weird and interesting thing to do. But they're planting some more sort of innovative things and mm-hmm. putting in some different trees. Um, and I think it's going to add interest and diversity to our streetscapes mm. by doing that. Mm. So instead of just yet more plain trees, um, they, there is actually some interesting plantings going on in yeah. the streets. Yeah. But I wish they'd stop doing that sort of lamandra thing along the edges of things that people are just going to tromp all over. And- That's happening all over the the city at the yeah. moment and it looks dreadful
0: absolutely and i think like that underplanting trees are so important for the shade for the canopy mm. but that underplanting, what happens below them that's at a human level that's what we mm. see day to day and so you know the more that we invest in that human level of planting in in, in greater diversity and wonder
1: the better i think tanika has become the new diosma has it? <laughs> I, I think so. You just see that everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I think probably what
2: we need in, in our um, uh, people in charge is a little bit more pre- preparedness to experiment. And in fact, whenever something looks like it's being overused, stop using it find the next thing so mm. that we get more diversity more there. diversity you know because yeah. and it's happening it happens in private gardens as well i mean i i'm old enough to remember when uh, my keely adult sopa which is now magnolia adult sopa was the tree and all the gardens around hawthorne and Turak they lined the boundaries with the damn thing and before you knew it you needed a miner's lamp to find your way around the garden because it got so dark uh, and then they went off a little bit. And then, well, I guess the one that's still a bit of a pain in the neck is magnolia little gem. I mean, it's not that good. Not so part. little. Yeah, well, it's not so little. The name's deceptive. Mm. Um, but the flowers aren't as good as the straight form of magnolia grandiflora. Uh, and, yeah, it was just a good sell. It wasn't a, It wasn't actually a particularly good tree. And, again, we're going to have that issue where, in due course, people are all going to go, oh, why is that, you know? Uh, capital pears. Yep. Why? Yeah, that's another thing that really gets me. I I mean, there's so many other comparatively upright, interesting, deciduous trees you could plant that are probably every bit as hardy and, in fact, probably more structurally sound Mm. than some of the pears. um, And they're not being used and they're still planting masses Mm. of those ornamental pears. And the flowers stink.
0: And I'm such a sucker for those Australian small eucalypts, like mellies and mallets. That have, you know, there there are quite a few of those cultivars uh, and yeah. varieties. Watch
2: this space because we've got a video coming up on our YouTube channel on the smaller eucalypts that we did down at the Melton Botanic Gardens. Mm. I don't know when Matthew's going to put it up, but it's he's got to edit it yet and put it together. Uh, but yes, if anybody wants to see small eucalypts, go and have go a look Melton. at Melton oh, Botanic yeah. Gardens. Oh yeah,
1: good fun. Or oh. any of the natives. Not yeah. a, a lot of. Well, we I am South yeah, Australian natives. And, well, we
2: did a story that's gone to air on the Erymophila's down there. Uh, saw that. Beautiful mm. plants. I mean, mm. I was just blown away mm. by some of the ones I hadn't met before. Mm. Um, incredible group of plants. I mean, mm. they don't do terribly well up around Macedon, but uh, in drier, warmer, sunnier areas, the Erymophila's are yeah. great
1: value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It literally translates as, as desert-loving plant. Yeah. Mm. Yeah.
2: So. so, yeah, I, I was... Astounded by some of the ones down there. I would like to grow Eremophila muralei.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: By God, that was a gorgeous plant. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think it'll grow a massive. No. With mm-hmm. those furry white leaves and burgundy and flowers. You've I got too look. much shade. Yeah, and too yeah. much shade. Yeah. Yep. It's Not one happening, of those things, I'll just go to Melbourne. Go and, and visit. It. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jake, before we come to you, when I want to come to some of your plants, um, Kim has texted in to say the High Line in Paris is the best. Lots oh. of water, plants, and a great walk.
2: Well, there you go. I haven't done that yet. Yeah,
1: didn't even know. Yeah. Um, Oh, and she's also mentioned, don't forget the Rose Show at the Centenary Rose Gardens in Morwell, uh, which is on today. Costa is there along with workshops all free. Um, Saw them on Wednesday and they are stunning. So thank you for that. And Ange in Belgrave has written in to say good morning, our Hornbeam. Got eaten by possums last year and this year new growth seems to be stunted. Branches are alive but very few leaves. Majority of growth is on the top. Should we cut it back to try and promote more growth is now an okay time to do it.
2: All right. Well, I would have pruned it in the winter. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would probably leave things as they are now and then prune it in the winter. The big issue is that if you've had possums clean out your hornbeams once, then they're likely to keep doing it. And so you've then got to consider, is there a way that you can manage it so that they can't get at the tree? Because otherwise you're just going to fight against it for the rest of your life and you're not going to win. I mean, I've had trees in my garden that the possums have just decimated. And in the end, I think, well, what's the point? And so I just take the tree out and try something else. Um, Because you have to. I mean, you can't in the end win against things like possums. And we get brush tails, we get ring tails, we even get sugar gliders in our garden. So we've got all these different creatures wafting around at night. And they love certain deciduous trees. I think the foliage is soft and Mm, and delicious. Uh, That's why they love roses, I guess, as well. Uh, And Japanese maples are a classic. Uh. Possums love them in my garden. I've virtually given up growing maples. It's just not worth the effort. Mm. Uh, I was happy to let the roses go in some ways. Um, but, um, yeah, there's certain plants that you really want to grow, but at the end of the day, you just got you can't fight against nature forever. Mm. So you've got to find ways of managing it. If you can exclude the possums from the area where these trees grow, for, however, I don't know, um, perhaps putting the perspex um, sheets around the trunks if there's nowhere that they can come in from the top. Uh, that might work, and then you can have your horn beams. But otherwise, I think you've got to consider whether it's a long-term mm. viable option because the little buggers, they'll be back to get them again and again and again. Yep. So, yep. you know, you won't win.
1: All right. Well, thank you. Uh, this is The Gardening Show. I'm Aby Bishop. I'm in the studio with Stephen Ryan and Jack Semler. So, Jack, let's get to some of your gorgeous little plants you've yes, brought in. Yes,
0: I have brought in full flower power this morning. <laughs> you have. I'm very Unsurprising. Mm. Um, and I just wanted to do a few little shout-outs to a few of the Australians. So, mm. you would, we were just talking about West Australian, South Australian plants and I've brought in One of these gorgeous little shorter kangaroo paws that have been bred at Kings Park. They've produced some gorgeous stuff over there. They're doing some really amazing breeding, not just on kangaroo paws, that iconic Australian flower, but also on a lot of Geraldton waxes
2: Mm, With the verticordias. Yes, as well. And they're doing grevilleas as well. They've they've produced some amazing grevilleas Really
0: incredible and it's so pleasing when we see breeding happening in some of our Australian plants and other plants that are really dry, you know, climate compatible with areas of Australia as well. So, you know, full strength to them. And some of the colours that are coming out, so I've got that incredible, I don't think that that's been bred there, but the land landscape lilac yeah. kangaroo paws so I've got that, that. Was one that's of Angus's, Angus's. Yeah. yeah so the landscape <laughs> ranges Angus's yeah so I yeah. love Angus's one I've got that one in the front yard and then I've got this smaller purple carnival that's in the backyard at the moment from that Kings Park breeding and it's really interesting and it's the first season that I've had it in and it is incredibly prolific yeah as well so a lot of flowers I'm unsure about its longevity at the moment because this is the first time I've bred them and obviously with some of that experimental breeding the performance and the longevity of them improves over time, but yeah, from Angus's gorgeous landscape lilac kind of soft purple delight that's on the flowering on the nature strip to this little guy, I'm having a lot of fun with purple and mauve um, kangaroo paws at the moment. Mm-hmm.
2: Have you tried the turquoisey one?
0: I have got the turquoisey one. Oh, it's a one. most colour. I, Royale, I, can't get I my think it's round oh, well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've got a blue one. Yeah, and I have to admit, like I'm all, I'm, I'm not. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I'm
2: in awe of them but I'm, I'm not sure not, I'm about the colors sure. they're, so, they're so unnatural looking. Yeah,
0: it's a bit fluoro. No <laughs> no judgment for for people out yeah. there that are into fluoro. Go forth, enjoy. Yeah. But but, yeah, it's kind of been fun to experiment. I think that everybody appreciates, like, it's so much fun just to have a crack and see how something goes in your garden mm. as well. So so thank you very much, uh, Angus Stewart
1: and Digby Kings Park. Digby Grounds Digby. Digby, at, yeah. at, at yeah. Grounds. Kings Park. And just, yeah, they're doing an amazing thing. And Angus has uh, gone back to breeding kangaroo paws and he's getting some incredible results. So watch watch the space yeah. with Angus. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And then also a uh, beautiful interior indigenous plant from the Mornington Peninsula where I garden, the showy protolipus, just amazing. It's got this big yellow flower. Marilyn Sprague, who I used to work with many years ago, always referred to it as like the daffodil of like of Victoria. Like it really has that big yellow bright flower. Yeah. Daisy. a Daisy. Yep. Sorry. And so... You know, it's just I'm so surprised because we're always looking for that kind of color impact with a lot of the flowers that we use and that one just coated just so fabulous and that it has this beautiful little nodding head before it flowers too so it's just sweet in every little aspect. How tall does that one get? Yeah, so it's about 30 centimetres, 25 Mm. to 30 centimetres Mm. as well. Mm. Yeah, and so you can use, we're using a lot of these smaller, like 25 centimetre, 30 centimetres to create like a little bit of a gravel garden at home and having a lot of fun with it. Yeah.
1: It's gorgeous. And do you find it's long lasting?
0: I am finding it's long-lasting. I've I've used some plants that I were growing from last year and so I've been pleased with how the plants developed and growing and the flowering is good. I'm going to go and give them a bit of a dead head so I can, you know, get that extension of flowering mm, yeah. as well. But the the amount of flowers that each
1: plant has on it, just delicious. Fantastic. All right, we're going to come back to you, Jack, because you've got a whole vase full there, and I want to also talk to you about your management of <laughs> of your amazing garden. Um, but for the time being, let's go to Ben. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. How can we help?
4: Um, look, I'm not much of a gardener, but I've just moved into a new share house, and there's a rose bush that was kind of leaning very heavily and was tied onto the fence. Mm -hmm. And the tie has come loose and the whole thing has
2: basically snapped right off at the base. And we're just wondering if there's anything we can do to save it. Well, if it's actually snapped off, then you've got to wait and see whether anything comes up from below the break. And the issue with most roses is that they are, in fact, budded or grafted, and so it could be understock that comes up. So it could be useless if, it, if that happens. But if there's enough wood down there that's above the understock, Uh, If it snapped, I'd get a saw out and clean off the top of the cut and make it nice and clean so it's not jaggedy and and rough. Uh, And then just sit back and wait and see what happens. And if uh, you say you're not much of a gardener, you might have to get somebody to come in and check whether, because there will be regrowth. I'd be really surprised if there isn't. Uh, You might have to get somebody who knows their stuff to come in and check it and see whether it's the understock growing or whether it's the the top that's managed to come back. Uh, And once you know that for sure, then you can make final decisions on where you go from there. Okay, great. But no way to save the... Not if it's snapped off like that. you better just to cut it off. Yeah, well, it's, it's, all, it's cut itself off. Yeah, yeah. So We can't the, you... graft it back on. No, no, you can't, you can't graft it back on. I mean, you know, sometimes if you get a small crack in something, you can seal it up and, and, and get it to heal. But it's always going to be a weakness anyway. Yeah. So, you know, the next storm that comes along, the whole thing could come out anyway. But if it's basically been snapped right off, it goes in the green waste bin.
4: All right. Thanks very much.
2: Pleasure. Good,
1: good on you, Ben. Thanks for calling in. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. bye, bye, bye. Oh, I love it when people who don't know anything, they're just getting into gardening and they call up. Yes, yes. go, Ben. Yes. And we're all on that journey. Just get yeah. started. And the stupid yeah, part
0: yeah, but...
2: about it is it's not a journey that ever ends, so it doesn't matter how knowledgeable you become as a gardener, there's always something new to learn anyway. Oh, so yeah. you don't need to feel incompetent or anything. Or no. Whatever level no. you're at, revel in it and just do what you know you can do and ask questions and learn because learning about gardening is what gardening is all about as far as I'm concerned I want to meet the new plant I haven't met before and Mm. find the new technique I haven't used before and uh, you know it's it's Mm. you can learn something every day
0: Mm. and plants can be so surprising like Mm. especially when we have these different kind of seasonal variation I think you're so right like Learning is that joy of gardening as well. The discovery,
1: the wonder, like you can never get enough of it. So so get started. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. A couple of texts. Uh, Robin has messaged in to say we have a 12-year-old eucalyptus scoparia and it has been attacked by a pest. Neighbour thought it might be lerps. It is experiencing dieback in its leaves. Do we have any advice? Well, the first advice is that the lerps are actually the house that the psyllids build. So the lerps are those sugary sort of Mm. casings that is what we actually see on eucalypt leaves, uh, which are beloved by lots of birds. Mm. Um, So obviously if it's 12 years old, it's relatively tall, quite hard to deal with. Um, So I would be maybe, I know this is a long-term thing, but planting some plants which encourage the smaller birds and they might help clear it up. Um, and just generally keeping the health of the plant going, make sure it doesn't dry out too much through the summer and um, applying a bit of uh, seaweed solution, those sorts of things. I mean, there can be different reasons why your eukes are um, dying back. Often it's um, caterpillars taking hold. I mean, there's a lot of um, moths and butterflies that um, their host plants are eucalypts. Um, so not necessarily a bad thing, and if, but the trouble is when there's no other eucalypts in the area, if they land on your tree, they tend to sort of take mm. over. The so. tree's
2: likely to come back again, though, yeah. isn't it? AP? Yeah, I mean, it's Absolutely. just a, a little bit of a check to its growth for now, yeah. and these things tend to be seasonal. Um, and, of course, it's one of the things people don't think about when they're planting natives. They, everybody's sort of talking about, oh, have got to plant natives because they're hardy and they're easy to grow and all that sort of thing. But people tend to forget we also have the native insects and predators mm. and other things so there's this sort of checks and balance things that's going on and it's why some plants become feral when they're out of their native habitat because they haven't got their native checks and balances with them so you know these things happen and you yeah mm. um if the tree's 12 years old i feel reasonably confident it'll be fine long term just mm. Sit back and wait in some ways. Yep.
0: And Australian plants, like we've got such a big continent with, you know, so many different mm. climates as well. And so just being Australian doesn't mean that it's going to survive necessarily. Mm. In yeah, look at tree
2: ferns. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you do have to have specific requirements for some of our natives. And I do get worried by people who decide they're going to go down the native path just because they think they're indestructible uh, and they don't understand the diversity of our plant material. Um, that's why a lot of exotics become weedy because they're even hardier and, and, and more adaptable and mm. and less prone to pests and diseases because their local checks and balances aren't with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just planting natives because of supposed hardiness can be a pitfall. Um, yeah. So i would be very, you know, you've got to know more about them than that. Yeah,
1: I mean, but the fact is native birds clean up a lot of pests and yeah. they will help keep that in balance so be getting some shrubs in there to try and attract yeah. those little yeah. birds you need all those yeah, different levels you need the and different levels look, people who've layers. been in my
2: garden realize that it's not a native garden per se I mean I've got some native plants there I've allowed the native trees to stay in, in situ so I've got uh, messmates and I've got uh, blackwoods and things that are uh, uh, native of the area I've still got one cherry ballard, but one fell over in that big storm. Um, but um, so I've got a few native trees, and there's a few native plants I've sort of snuck in amongst the other stuff. But my garden's not really a native garden, mm. but it is rattling with birds because of habitat. And people forget mm. they they plant something that has nectar, thinking that's the only thing they need to do. Yeah. But you need to get ground covers and intermediate shrubs and, and taller things and so you go up in canopies you get twiggy things that little birds can hide in if it's prickly all the better mm. um, and you know you build up that sort of habitat place and the birds will come in and make use of it um, and I have to say there's plenty of exotic plants that produce nectar the birds seem to be perfectly happy to yeah. take as yeah, well they're,
1: they're not uh, really fussy no, in, in if it's got nice regards. tubular
2: red flowers you yep. find the honey eaters in it um, yep. I've got a, an abutilon at the nursery that they love and they rattle over the whole time because it flowers all year round uh i've got uh, uh neotropical blueberries in the garden at home agapetes with little red flowers on them the honey eaters adore them mm. you know there's spine bills in eastern uh, and and new hollands that go over that that plant all the time and it's just outside my kitchen window beautiful so yeah uh, yeah yeah so you just need to get that multi layered. get thing. the diversity yeah, happening and, and it's jack's idea of having this over-planted, buoyant sort of garden. I mean, that's what animals love as well. So... Yes, if you, if you space everything out so that it looks nice in 20 years' time, the animals aren't going to enjoy it either. Yes.
0: So if you get one message from this morning, yeah. more plants. More plants. <laughs> Biodiversity if, if is you a you good thing. you think you've got enough, you've got nowhere uh, enough. Yes. Layers okay. and layers. the solution.
1: <laughs> All right, quick question from Lizzie in Geelong. Well, hopefully it's a quick answer. Um, hello, team. Is there a simple recipe for potting mix for potting up garden bits and pieces, hydrangeas, butylon, geranium, etc. Uh, Thanks for a wonderful program.
2: Oh, oh dear. Um, Obviously, a a well-constructed commercial potting mix is fine. uh, And the simplest and easiest way to go about it, except, of course, you've got to pay for it if you're going to make your own potting mixes the big pitfalls are that you need to have something coarse and granular in it so some sort of coarse sand or gravel Uh, scoria in fact is perfect because it also has um, trace elements and things in it so if you can get quarter inch scoria that's fabulous then you need your moisture holding things so composts and well-rotted leaf molds and things like that can make the component and then you've really just got to make it up in a balanced way that's going to drain well but still hold moisture Uh, and that's trial and error to a large extent because it depends on the materials you're using so at least with the potting mix you buy it's generally fairly standard and you get used to using it you know how much water it's going to need and all that sort of stuff if you're making your own it can be a little bit more difficult and of course you've also got the issue of potential weeds and things coming up in your potting mix yeah so you do have to keep all those things in mind if you're going to create your own uh i just buy 10 meter truckloads.
1: loads <laughs> <laughs> easy yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah it
2: suits me fine yeah.
1: um all right thank you uh rosie and mount eliza uh, I think she's quite mean. Uh, I'm just going to put that out there. Hello, guys. Loving the enthusiasm. Can Stephen please repeat the name of the fabulous Eremophila? I'm desperate to grow something that he can't.
2: <laughs> oh, you horrible person!
1: No, go for
2: It's yeah. Say that Eremophila. It's Eremophila, Eremophila So it's named after Baron von Mueller, who was the first government botanist in Victoria, and so he had a particularly good eye for a plant. So he named. I'm assuming he named it after himself. Maybe somebody else did Um, but yes it's the most fabulous silvery grey foliage and these incredible dark clarity burgundy flowers on it which stand out amazingly against the foliage Mm. it's the plant I saw down at Melton was a bit of an open leggy sort of thing it didn't look like it was going to be a particularly bushy plant but that's the other thing I like I like plants that actually have an open airy habit Uh, why Mm. does everybody want things that are round plum puddingish blobs in the garden. I like a plant that's sort of open that and you airy. can see through. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, the, you can then plant it to the front of a border so that you don't end up with something that looks like Greengrocer's staging uh, because a see-through plant can be really useful that way. Mm. And I know it won't hide your nefarious carryings on from your neighbours, um, but you do need plants like that in the garden. So, yes, Erymophila muralea. Go uh, go for it,
1: Rosie. Yeah, we and wanna... I,
2: want, I want to report yeah. back. <laughs> yes, <you> know, <laughs> this time uh,
1: next year. And
2: I want your address so that I come around and and throw some bleach at it occasionally <laughs> no. just to stop you from getting away with this.
1: <laughs> All right, Kate in Northcote has a Daphne that looks, looks healthy but has some yellow leaves, drooping and some scale. Flowers mm. beautifully and it's quite large. I did not prune after flowering this year because I was away. Should I do anything? Well, I wouldn't prune now. No, no. but it
0: sounds like definitely going back to the fundamentals mm. and ensuring, you know, that, that it's getting sufficient water especially as we go through this hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold kind of season. It sounds like it's a little upset and, you know, often it gets a bit of plants get attacked by pests when Mm. they are not happy and so seeing what you can do to amend that stress no. but potentially a bit of a feed to it getting, yeah, what look, would you now, think, now would be
2: you? a good time to feed a Daphne uh the mm. only thing I have a, a real problem with with Daphne is of course that there's also Daphne virus out there yeah and it could be the beginnings of Daphne virus and there's nothing much you can do about it so if that's what is happening uh if it's only the older leaves it may just be getting ready to shed some of its older leaves too some mm. people get paranoid about evergreens dropping leaves uh, and when new growth comes old leaves drop Uh, but if it's looking a bit flaggy and droopy I hate to say this Jack but it might be the opposite it might have got too wet at some stage too
0: wet yeah because Daphne's have a
2: very fleshy root system and um, uh, of course The roots will die if they get wet, wet, wet. But often the the damage doesn't show up until the warm weather sets in because they can't then take up the moisture because their Mm. roots are dying.
0: Excellent bit of advice. Yeah,
2: so you do need to go in both directions. It sounds like I'm sort of covering all bases, but it can be too dry, but it can also be the evidence of having been too wet and if there's too much root damage there's not much you can do about it but if you know if the roots are still alive well you know give it the seaweed because Mm. that will be a tonic and it will help reinstitute some more root system and give it a bit of a tonic that'll sort of boost it a bit but Daphne virus there's nothing you can do about it you can feed them up and they'll green up for a while but it'll eventually kill out the plant if that's what's there and without seeing it I can't say whether it is or not
1: yeah fair enough all right our fellow co-host Chloe Foster, is taking advantage of the panel today. Uh Uh-oh. And she said, would love some tips on dealing with passion vine nymphs. They're in proportions uh, that will be damaging to my plants and just seem to jump away when I spray soapy (laughs) water on them. (laughs) (laughs) They don't like having a shower, Chloe. (laughs) Nymphs, maybe
0: it's a good idea to kind of explore some biological control? Yeah. If you consider, good like, bugs. there's
1: some good bugs out there. Yeah, and you can that's... hop on to good bugs and bugs for bugs. And... Yes. Yeah. yeah.
2: I would start with that because yeah. I don't know that there's any other biological controls for things like passion vine nymphs. Um, and they are an insidious creature that can cause quite a lot of damage to your vines. Uh, and Chloe's right, you can't really deal with them uh, just by spraying with soapy water or something because they will just keep coming back Mm. Uh, but again like anything else it's going to be seasonal Mm. so if not too much damage is done sometimes just doing nothing can work Uh, I remember as a very young horticulturalist in my old family nursery one year for no apparent reason we had this incredible infestation of aphids The tree ferns were covered in them. The maples were covered in them. Everything was covered in aphids. And I was just getting to the point where I was going to go out with a spray pack and start spraying everything because the damage was starting to be quite severe. Uh, So I was just really waiting for a nice fine calm day where I could go out and spray some toxic chemical. I don't even remember what I'd planned to spray now, but whatever the chemical of the time was, I was going to use it because there was just so much damage going on. Um, but the weather was just so fickle, I didn't get out to do anything. And Suddenly, my garden was full of uh, praying mantises, Mm. uh, ladybirds. In fact, every morning I would go out and scrape the ladybirds off the top of the swimming pool and put them back in the garden again. Quite literally, (laughs) I was scooping them off the pool. And there were thousands of them, finches, silver eyes, uh, all sorts of small birds. And within a couple of weeks, I couldn't find an aphid. And so I hadn't disbalanced things by spraying, because if I'd done that, I would have thrown the whole thing out of whack Mm. so sometimes i'm prepared to accept damage and just see what happens Mm.
0: yes and also that happens so often with like the parasitic wasps and Mm. other stuff that can come in and really take out a lot of those bad pests that Mm. you have in the garden yeah and
2: and we're trying to get balance we're not trying to get eradication Mm. people say what can i kill it with no i'm sure (laughs) chloe's not doing that um she knows enough not to be thinking about it in that that way but Mm. a lot of people think that you've got to get the spray out uh, and you've got to kill them all what you you just need is to bring nature back to balance so that they can still be there in small quantities Mm. um and then all the beneficial creatures can deal with them and you bring your nature back into balance and i have to say at the end of the day if you haven't been able to balance nature and you've got a plant that is really struggling i pull the plant out Mm. The Reth-
1: rethink the garden. Yeah, yeah. yeah I did absolutely. that with a hedge. I
2: had planted a hedge of new, of um, Chilean um, luma, the um, cinnamon bark myrtle, uh, which can make quite a good hedge, but I hadn't considered the um, red spider mite.
0: Which can, you know, cause so much significant damage, can't it, if it it gets in there?
2: And it did. And I ended up with something that looked more like a (laughs) pleached alley because all the lower branches were dying off the thing. So I went through beneficial bugs and I got these things that, you know, could help. But at the end of the day, they did help, but they didn't make the plants clean enough to do the job that I needed Mm. them to do. Mm. And so I bit the bullet and took them all out. It's a great philosophy. I took out 50 plants. You know, it was a hedge.
0: I love that approach because it's like we we have these barriers and challenges that come up in our gardens but actually just make us more creative gardeners. Well, I planted a different hedge.
2: I still needed a hedge where it was. So I ended up planting Escalonia as an alternative, which I have to say has been quite successful, except where it gets into the shade a bit much and then it gets a bit thin. Um, But it doesn't get... Red spider mite doesn't get any of those bugs and pest problems. Uh, I can cut it back really hard and start it off again if I feel the need. So
1: better plant for the place. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. And that's
2: what I did. You know, having said that, you've, there's not an alternative for a passion fruit in a way. No. So If you want the fruit.
1: <laughs> all right, Jack, let's get to a couple more of your plants. Yes, uh, yes So I have, brought in some,
0: I have brought in some little classic, um, you know, all the favourites, uh, roses and sweet peas. So I've got this gorgeous little burgundy and white rippled... Um, a sweet pea that Lily Langham actually who's doing the open garden she gave me this one yeah, so you know gorgeous. you always get gorgeous things from your friends and as well as a beautiful rose the Munstead. Wood, like it always has that beautiful um, form to it. It's got a really lovely scent for a David Austin rose, mm. too. like not often do they have like a really strong scent, but this is a really beautiful thing.
2: Yeah, if then, you're not going to have scent with a rose, like I almost start to think they've got no purpose.
0: Yes, exactly. You need to have a little bit of that mm. wonder. And then I brought in some little Californians, so I've got a Clarkia, which is really gorgeous. It's, it's got a wonderful this magenta color is isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's got a magenta flower, and then I really love the Clarkia. I'm just growing a mix um, of seeds to do some selection from. Mm. But it's also got this really gorgeous kind of glaucus foliage and this really kind of blush stem, which creates such a gorgeous contrast uh, to the flower as well, as well as one of the Penstemon's... To are uh, growing the strictest at the moment, but then also I'm um, growing this cultivar Electric Blue, mm-hmm. um, f- which I sourced from Antique Perennials. And it's got a really ethereal kind of blue colour to it that really illuminates in that golden hour of the and day. And it is
2: pushing on to true blue, unlike nine tenths of plants that people sell mm. in nurseries as blue, yeah. <laughs> which are generally mauve but, or purple.
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, right from the opening of the flower down towards the brack that kind of goes through like a true blue down to a mauve. Purple, which is mm. gorgeous, but then a rock isotome too. I've got growing them a whole lot of them on my nature strip at the moment, and they like the Patalepus, like just completely covered in flowers and just not, not like used as much as I think mm. should for an Australian plant in our gardens, like has a really beautiful, uh, like fully flowered kind of quality to them. So all different bits and pieces from the garden as well today. And
1: lots of yellows, mauves, purples is that your sort of aesthetic or do you go for anything and everything? Yeah, do you
2: have orange? Do you? Do? Yes. I'm,
0: I love all colour. Good. All colour is a great thing. I'm I'm always kind of amused by like I think sometimes we're told these really strict rules around the use of colour in uh, gardens. Yeah. And gardens are really personal places. Like if you love yellow, if you love orange go forth. I grow. have to
2: say though if they don't like yellow or orange they should take aversion therapy and plant (laughs) some because i really worry about people who have that oh i can't have yellow in the garden that means you can't have a daffodil i mean you know really at the end of the day um all color should have a place in a garden i think and how you put it together you're right is a personal it's it's
0: an artistic pursuit
2: i started off my gardening career in my garden where i am now with a very strong idea of color and I was going to have the red and yellow border I was going to have the blue and yellow border I was going to have the pastel shade border a la Barbara Cartland um, and so I was, and all those things but I've actually relaxed a lot now and although my garden is more about form texture and shape not so much about flower but where I use flowers the only rule I now have really with my color combinations is I keep primary and hot colours in one area of the garden and pastels and pales mm. in other areas. It's mm. all I do because I think all the pastels work together. All the bright hot colours, I don't care if it's a, a, a vivid lolly pink and a bright red and a, a, a rich yellow. Uh, if you put them all together, and you're always going to have a foil of foliage anyway, um, it's exciting. Uh, mm-hmm. It works in our hot sun. Uh, and I have my pastels in a shadier spot uh, where they stand out. Mm. And I think that... For me, that works, but if it doesn't work for other people, that's fine too. Yeah,
0: At Heartland, at my garden, I feel like this garden is really, like it's my plant lab, like it's where we test and trial different plant combinations, different plant communities. And so I've got all different kinds of little pockets of planting, even on the verge, as you know, a little succession of different yeah. series of plantings. And so there's plenty of room to explore different colour palettes, not only at certain points in time, but their succession throughout the year too, because mm. we really love having succession, and dynamic kind of plantings. And so you can kind of design it to have a particular colour palette at one point of time in the year, and then it completely sw- yeah. can switch and change to a completely different one at a different point in time. So, you know, there's so much fun to be had. And if you're a little bit – like, if you're a little unsure about how to get cracking with colour, you know, you're choosing your interiors you and in choosing what you wear. Like, feel confident – There's different ways that you can go about it by, you know, cutting out magazine clippings of colour palettes that you like, going to art galleries to see the art that you like, even like nicking into hardware stores and getting little colour palettes, Mm. like from the paint area. Like there's different ways to kind of explore and develop colour palettes in your garden. And
2: I know my red border was an absolute nightmare because (laughs) there's blue reds and there's orange reds. And they don't necessarily go well together. Mm, mm. Um, And, of course, you'd bring home a plant thinking, oh, this is red, so it's going in the red border. But then you'd realise the red border didn't get enough sun in that area for that plant anyway. So you can actually almost paralyze yourself by by being too specific about what you're trying to do. So, I've relaxed a lot in over the years and yeah, so I just I have a sort of vague idea of what should work and and as long as I've got lots of foliage and things, everything sort of does.
1: Yeah, and more experimentation. Yep, guys, unfortunately oh, no, I it's... could talk to you for the rest of the day but yep. it is that time, uh... very, very annoyingly. It goes so, so quickly. I didn't even get round any of my other I'm sorry, <laughs> Stephen. Steve you can put them back matter. in the band.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'll bring them back another
1: time. Bring them back another time. Look, thanks so much, Stephen Ryan and Jack Semler for sharing your incredible knowledge. Uh, thank you to our producer, Tom Manning, for um, keeping things under control. And uh, thanks to you, the listeners. My name is Ab Bishop and um Until next week, bye-bye for now.
0: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.